This is Rabbi Sharon Brouse, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It's so good to be back with you all. I missed you. And it's good to be together again. I think a middle of August Shabbos is a good time to do a little bit of time travel with you all back to the second century CE to a pivotal moment in the world of Jewish law. A moment that simultaneously subverted the law and saved it. A moment celebrated for its creativity and courage, yet mourned for what it revealed about the shortcomings of its society. This moment is known as Takanat Hillel Hazaken, the enactment of Hillel the Elder. All right, so a Takana, a rabbinic enactment, is the ace up your sleeve. It's the card you'd rather not play because in some ways cheats the game by bypassing all the rules that typically govern it. You see, Jewish law evolves through the meticulous and carefully curated presentation of proof texts, novel interpretations of existing law that the rabbis debate to determine if a change in practice is warranted. The stakes are high. The rabbis understood the mitzvot in the Torah as nothing short of divine command, God's direct communication about how we should live. So for the rabbis to alter the meaning of the Torah's text to align with a changing society, careful analysis is required. Debate, proof texts, bringing supporting arguments also rooted in the Torah, right? Those are the rules of the game. But a takana does none of that. It simply states, with the full force of rabbinic authority, this is the new law. No debate, no proof texts, just a corrective. Which begs the question, what was Hillel trying to correct? All right, so to answer this question, we have to start with a well-known and frequently drashed upon section of this week's Torah portion. So the context here is Shemitah, the sabbatical year that occurs every seventh year. Now, most people primarily associate Shemitah with letting the land rest and the agricultural laws that are meant to reorient our relationship to land and to the notion of private ownership, since all land in the Shemitah year becomes ownerless, and of course, towards building equitable food systems. But there's a second dimension to Shemitah introduced in today's Torah reading in Parshat Re'eh. Every seventh year, you shall practice Shemitah, which means here, the remission of debts. They shall remit the due that they claim from their fellow. That's what the Torah says. Meaning, all loans are forgiven, are canceled by the Shemitah year. If I loaned you $100 or a bag of wheat seeds, You ought to try to repay me at some point in the first six years of the cycle. But if you're unable to do so, by the seventh year, I am obligated 
to release my claim on what you owe me. I, I can't approach you in the seventh year and demand my $100 back. The Shemitah year wipes out whatever amount the borrower owes. All right, so let's pause to note that the Torah is actually advancing a pretty radical vision of economic justice. In a world back then, as today, in which the rich tend to get richer and the poor encounter obstacle after obstacle in escaping poverty, loan forgiveness is a way to redirect this inertia. It doesn't dissolve the class system entirely. There are still borrowers and lenders, but it gives the poor a chance to reset, to escape from the mountain of debt that threatens their livelihood and dignity. The Torah here is identifying a problem. People fall into debt and can't get out of it, and it's legislating a solution. Every seventh year, the debt is released. And yet, just five verses later, a new problem, an anticipated one, is identified. The Torah says, if, however, there is a needy person among you, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy kin. Rather, you must open your hand and lend whatever is sufficient to meet the need. In other words, lenders, don't be stingy. Don't withhold loans, further condemning the needy amongst you. All right, but why would the Torah imagine that lenders would do such a thing? Now the text moves into the potential thought process of the lender. Beware lest you harbor the base thought. The seventh year, the year of remission is approaching so that you are mean and give nothing to your needy kin. So there it is. A new problem identified. Loan forgiveness will disincentivize the wealthy from giving loans in the first place. And especially as the Shemitah year approaches, the thought will grow louder. I might not recoup this money, so I'm not going to give. Their problem, not mine. So what's the Torah's solution? That's the problem. What's the solution? Naton titenlo. Give readily and have no regrets when you do so. For in return, your God will bless you in all of your efforts and in all of your undertakings. Why do the right thing? Even if on the surface it seems financially suspect, the answer, repeated throughout Deuteronomy, God will bless you for doing the right thing. You might not recoup your loan, but God's got your back. Lovely. <laughs> but it seems pretty clear that by the second century, that logic wasn't convincing enough. Enter Hillel the Elder and his Takana. So here's what it says. This is the Mishnah. Hillel observed people refraining from lending to one another for the very reason the Torah feared, namely the realization that the loan would be forgiven meant that they weren't giving at all. Lenders were having the exact thought the Torah anticipated, and unlike the Torah's prediction, acting on that base thought. So the Mishnah reports, Hillel enacted the prose bull. Here's how it works. Are you with me? Okay. Here's how it works. A prose bull is a written document submitted to the court which transfers the debt to the court. All right, so the $100 that you owe me, you no longer owe me. 
You owe instead to the court. And this changes everything. Because there is no Torah requirement for a court to forgive outstanding loans in the Shemitah year. Loan forgiveness only applies between two individuals. So the borrower is now still on the hook for repaying the loan, but instead to the court. Then, and here's the kicker, the pros bull stipulates that the original lender can collect the money paid to the court at any time. You pay $100 to the court, and I collect it from the court. In effect, Hillel's Takana categorically abolishes loan forgiveness. Yeah, th this is the look of scandalized faces. H how can he do that? Really, really, how can he do that? The Torah says clearly, without mincing words, that in the seventh year, all outstanding loans are forgiven. But he even anticipates an objection to the commandment and nonetheless doubles down. And none of that prevents Hillel from enacting the prosbul, right? from pulling the ace from his sleeve. So why? Surely Hillel recognizes the ethical and economic vision of justice embedded within the commandments to forgive loans. But the whole system is at risk for collapse if the wealthy are failing to provide loans in the first place. And when the system collapse, it's only the poor who suffer. That's the social reality that Hillel observed in his own day. Unwilling to lend without the promise of being paid, repaid, and without additional proof of God's blessings, the wealthy hardened their hearts and closed their fists, and the poor could never recover from a bad harvest, from a tough stretch, or the debilitating accumulations of poverty. So Hillel did what I can only imagine pained him. He retreated from the ideal of loan forgiveness to salvage some measure of assistance for the poor. He recognized that in our failing to reach the lofty ceiling of the Torah's vision for economic justice, the floorboards were also collapsing. And it wasn't good enough to beg and plead and demand that the rich just continue to give. The Torah tried that and failed. So he took the core message of these laws, that a society mustn't neglect the poor, and he built a new ground floor from this principle, new planks for his society to stand on so that the poor wouldn't sink into despair. And he did it with a legal workaround, a loophole, it's simultaneously brilliant and tragic. I want to take a step back and try to explain why I have felt it's important to spell out in great detail this 2,000-year-old chapter in Jewish legal history. This story is about what happens when a society fails to live up to the ideals it's expressed. It's about how the biases and greed and behavioral patterns of those with power can threaten not only the loftiest ideals, but the baseline expectations of a healthy society. And it's about how to fight against those forces, how to rebuild what's been lost. This cycle is, of course, as modern as it is ancient. It's a way to tell the story of this country, from the lofty ideals expressed in our founding documents to the recurring backsliding 
often intentionally orchestrated by those who profit from regression. But thankfully, throughout our country's history, we have models of fighting back to reclaim rights and dignities lost. And even so, it's hard not to look at this moment in our country as one of profoundly disturbing backsliding. For perhaps the first time in U.S. history, we have a Supreme Court intent on restricting individual rights and civil liberties rather than expanding them. The expressed ideals of this country, to name just two, of protecting equal rights for LGBTQ plus folks and guaranteeing the right to abortion are being dismantled under this court's oversight. In the second century, Hillel understood his society was crumbling, painfully distant from the ideal. We are living through the backslide, which means our work in this moment of the cycle is to find the takana, to find the corrective that helps the vulnerable in our society once again find footing. And I say our work, because the danger of the Prosbull story is that it appears that Hillel acted alone, that it was exclusively up to the most powerful rabbinic authority in the land to save his society from ruin. It's a hero's tale. But that's a myth. And in fact, it's a risky one. We know through countless examples in both American and Jewish history that societal progress is always the product of collective action. The work of recovering a lost ideal, the project of building back the foundations of a just society depends on everyone. And there is no time to sit around and wait for the mythic hero to emerge. Look, I don't mean to oversimplify this, to flatten the very real differences between those whose hands sit on the levers of power and those who must scream to be heard. There is no understating the tremendous responsibility that our elected officials and appointed justices, judges, have in directing our society towards justice. But it's also not a zero-sum game. In the words of Thurgood Marshall, the legal system can force open doors and sometimes even knock down walls, but it cannot build bridges. That job belongs to you and me. Quiet activism, that changes hearts and minds. Chanting on the streets, that echoes in the chambers of Congress. Storytelling seeds empathy. The shared pursuit of justice can build a bridge between neighborhoods, religions, classes, and races that otherwise inhabit distinct worlds. There are and must be converging paths towards the corrective. So the story of the prose bull is ultimately one of pragmatic resilience in an era of a fracturing social reality. It's a story that ought to remind us that when the ideal collapses, there is a real danger that the bottom will give out as well. And the vulnerable will suffer the most painful fall. And so, without delay, the work of rebuilding must begin, one floorboard at a time. Perhaps it's the only way to build a lasting home. Shabbat Shalom.
Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.